If you would, uh, please open God's Word to Psalm 19. It is found on page 538 of the Pew Bible, if you'd like to use that. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, please grab a Pew Bible, as we'll be looking verse by verse tonight at this great psalm. And, and more than usual, I think it will be helpful for you to have a copy of God's Word open on your lap. So please turn to Psalm 19. Now, if you're using the Pew Bible, and really if you're using any Bible for that matter, you may notice that the translators are telling you something about this psalm right from the start. If you look, you'll notice that the psalm has three parts, three stanzas or three verses, if you like. The translators have put little breaks between the verses so you can see the structure for yourself. In verses 1 through 6, the first verse or stanza of the psalm, God's glory is celebrated by the heavens and the skies. Begins The psalm begins, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. We looked at these verses last time and we noted that all of creation is singing God's glory. We noted that this witness, this witness of creation is constant, it is clear, and it is joyful. It's constant, verse 2 says, day to day, night to night. We live and we die under this clear sky testimony. And it's also a clear witness. Verse 4 reminds us that the words of this testimony have gone out. There is no language per se, but the message is clear. Paul uses this verse in Romans to remind us that the Gentiles and Jews are all under God's judgment because they refuse to respond to this witness. They may or may not have a Bible, but there's enough in creation to cause them to repent and seek God. Lastly, it's a joyful witness, this witness of creation. Verses 5 and 6, remember, describe the son as a bridegroom running with joy to meet his beloved. Unlike our current society, uh, David understood that at its beating heart, creation is joyful. It's full of beauty and meaning, even if and when the beauty is hidden by the effects of sin in our world. David's lovely expression here refutes the modern claim that nature is the product of blind chance and endless pointless violence. It's one of the great ironies of our time that Modern Western people have embraced a view of nature so much like the view of the ancient pagans. So many ancient people believed and described the world's formation as an accident or as an act of violence. In many ancient myths, the world came to be because someone messed up or someone was being punished. David's view then is so refreshing, then and now. Yes, the world is terribly broken by sin. As Paul reminds us in Romans, it groans for redemption. However, we can never place violence or cruelty at the heart of all things. Somehow, deep down, we must know that it is good and that it testifies to a good God. We live in the ruins, but even the ruins are glorious. This is the first witness to God's glory, but David moves on. There are actually two more witnesses in this psalm, and to David's mind, the next two are even better 
even stronger witnesses of God's glory. So let's consider those two final witnesses now tonight in verses 6 and following. So if you would, please stand as we do. And we'll really begin reading in verse 7, and we'll read to the end of the chapter in verse 14. The Torah of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The rules of Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, no prayer of mine can improve upon David's words. So therefore, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight and open the hearts of your people to receive what your word teaches. And this we pray for in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, out of pride, I wasn't going to do this, but I left my glasses there. And um, I think I'm going to go get them. I would love to say I could do this without them, but yes, that's much better. Okay. Psalm 19. C.S. Lewis, in his marvelous little book on the Psalms, called Psalm 19 the greatest poem in the Psalter. And of course, it's hard to pick a favorite psalm. I don't think I could do that or I want to do that or even make that attempt. And I'm guessing many of you feel the same. However, there is a tremendous balance and beauty to this psalm. And it's caught the eye of believers for centuries. And many mature believers will know it by heart or at least be familiar with its contents. Part of the attraction of Psalm 19, I think, is the movement the viewpoint we experience through reading it. We start in space, zoomed all the way out, as it were. We hear the song of the stars and planets as they praise the maker. We look up at night and we feel small. During the day, space is hidden from us and we attack our goals. We get things done. But during the sacred night, we look up and all our achievements seem ridiculously tiny. Then the psalm moves from space and sky to God's law, the, his Torah, his instructions. For David, that meant the Pentateuch, or the first five books of your Bible. This would have included the account of creation, 
the histories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Exodus would tell of Israel's birth as a nation and a time of stupendous miracles and the giving of the law. In the stars, we hear about God. They demonstrate that there is a creator out there somewhere. But in Torah, in scripture, we come to a greater witness. In the pages of scripture, we get to hear God's voice and see him act to save and guide his people. His word becomes a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. This is the second witness that God has given to us so that we can know him. And then suddenly, without warning, without transition, David comes to the last and what should be the greatest witness to God's person. Mankind, humans, made in his image. You see, in the heavens, in the heavens, we see God's signature. In scripture, we hear his instructions, but in men and women, we have the greatest, clearest revelation of all, the climax of all his creative acts, living persons made in the divine image. Well, at least that's how it should have been. It should have worked that way. Man should have been the crowning revelation of God, the God of the universe, but we fell into ruin. We chose to love ourselves and seek our own reflection. And that's why, you see, the psalm ends as it does with David searching himself for sin, asking for forgiveness, asking for redemption. He closes the psalm out by asking that his meditations, his witness, would by grace be pleasing to God. In other words, that his witness would be like the heavens and like Torah. You see, we've zoomed all the way in now, haven't we? We began in the stars, but now at the end, we are in the desperate private moment of another human being, another sinner. A man alone, a king alone, hoping that somehow, by grace, his voice, his life might match the witness of nature and scripture. Tonight, let's look with David and at David's celebration of Torah, of scripture as witness, and then at his agony over his own flawed and fragile witness to God's glory. So first of all, think with me for a moment about the witness of Torah, that is of scripture, and the witness it gives to God's glory. Look with me at verses 7 through 10, this verse of the psalm. The law of the Lord, or the law of Yahweh, is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. A couple things to notice here. First, these verses begin, verses 7 through 10, this verse begins with a hexapla. A hexapla means sixfold or six of something. In six perfectly parallel statements, 
David unfolds the excellencies of God's word. Each statement begins with a description. The law or Torah of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. Notice how David is urging us to consider all the parts of the Bible as if he is saying to us all of it, all its parts are excellent. All of it matters. All of it is incredibly valuable. Also, did you notice that the one thing remains the same in all six statements. They're, they're different except for one feature. Each statement has embedded in it the words of Yahweh, of Yahweh. It is the law of Yahweh. It is the commandments of Yahweh, the fear of Yahweh. In the first six verses of the psalm, Yahweh's name is not used. In your Bible, you can see this. Remember, Lord in all caps is the name Yahweh. And Lord in lower caps is just the word El, the generic word for God. So in the first six verses, very intentionally, David has used El, the generic word for God, just like our word G-O-D. But then here, as he talks about Torah, David switches suddenly and he keeps throughout the section using the name Yahweh. Well, here's the point. Creation tells me there is a God. I live in his art gallery. I can look at the heavens and know there's a creator and know something about him. But to know God covenantally, intimately, personally, to know God as Savior, I must come to Scripture. Yahweh is the personal, specific, covenantal, mosaic designation for God. This may not strike us as all that important as modern Western people, but for David and for all Jews, even for Jews alive today, this is very significant. Yahweh, that name, was considered the greatest revelation of the Mosaic period. As David is extolling and praising the Torah, the scriptures, he does so because Torah reveals God as Israel's God, as Savior, personally, in our own time, in the New Testament period, we have been given a great name for God as well. That name is Father. In the New Testament, the Trinity is fully revealed to us by Jesus, and he teaches us to pray and address God, Yahweh El, as Father. He does this throughout his ministry in part to instruct us in how we're to talk to God. So the scriptures in all their diversity, the commandments, the precepts, the narratives, the instructions, all of it is a covenantal revelation of a personal God, Yahweh, who is our God and our Savior. In scripture, we come to know God far more intimately, don't we, than we could ever know him from simply looking at the sky. Maybe I can put it this way. Nature, the heavens and earth, are clear enough to make you guilty. They're clear enough to make you guilty, but they're not clear enough to lead you to redemption. Something more is needed, so we move from a basic knowledge of God, El, the creator, to a full knowledge of Yahweh, the God of Scripture who saves and loves his people. One last thing about this hexapla, these six parallel statements. Notice that each dimension of the word 
has a role in our life, a role in our life. In other words, the law was written to change people, to reveal God and to reveal hearts. One of the most foolish things people say today is that the Old Testament isn't about your heart. It's just about formal obedience. Maybe someone has said that to you before. When someone says that to me, I know they've not read or meditated on the Old Testament. The passion of Moses, the passion of the prophets is white hot, and Yahweh wants the hearts of his people. You think about some of the expressions you find in the prophets. Some of them make us blush. When God is describing himself as a lover, as a husband chasing after Israel with all the passion and frustration and anger of a man who feels violated and cheated, it is very much a book about the heart. God has always been after our heart. heart. And as we read these six uh, descriptions, we see again and again how Torah speaks to the heart. David knows this. Of course, he is a, a man of intense passion and a man of great poetic ability. The Old Testament is not boring to him. It is full of power and application. In fact, by the end of the psalm, the Torah has so searched him. Notice that he cries out for salvation and mercy. Look again at some of the things that scripture can do for you and for me. First, in verse 7, it can revive the soul. This could be translated, it was in, in the King James, some of you might know this, convert the soul, literally. You might uh, notice or recognize those words from Psalm 23. It's the same Hebrew words, actually, where we read, He leads me beside still waters, he restores my soul. Same, same phrase. He converts or brings back to life my soul. We go on to read, that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Listen to the psalmist. This is from Psalm 119. I understand, this is the psalmist speaking, I understand more than the aged. This is a young man writing saying, I am wiser, usually you can't say this, <laughs> I'm wiser than the aged. I'm wiser than my teachers, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from e every evil way in order to keep your word. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. The word of God, Torah, imparts incredible wisdom to believers. This is why sometimes, maybe you've had this experience, you meet a young person who is serious about the Bible, and they seem older than they actually are. Meanwhile, you know dozens of elderly people who lack all sense, who make foolish decision after foolish decision. This is because the word of God opens eyes. When you're in it, you're able to discern what life is about. We could go on and on about God's word. David does, but let's close these verses by noting again David's total enthusiasm for the Bible. In verses 10 through 11, he sums it up. The word is better than gold, more valuable, and it is sweeter than honey. In other words, it's good for you and it tastes great too. The longer you live, as all our older members will tell you, the longer you live, the more it proves itself to be the word of God and the sweeter it becomes.
How wonderful is the word of God? Well, as we read Genesis earlier, did you pick up on a clue? Uh, Remember, David is using here in Psalm 19 phrases, exact phrases and words from Genesis as he writes this psalm. In verses 1 through 6, remember he talks about the heavens and the firmament just as Moses does in Genesis chapter 1. Now here in these verses, 7 through 10, as he's talking about Torah, he is once again using phrases in Hebrew from the book of Genesis, but this time from Genesis chapter 3. The words used here are the words scripture used to describe the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree... You heard Elder Borajan read this just a few moments ago. When the woman saw the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she saw that it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that it would open or restore the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. And she took. David is very intentionally telling us that the word of God is a new tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It makes one truly wise, it truly opens eyes, and it is sweet and good for food. Written into the depths of our human experience and history is a desire to find those two trees again, to eat of the tree of life and live, and by God's grace to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and know ourselves and God and sin and righteousness to understand, to be wise. And that is what scripture is for you and me. That is what is held out to us in scripture. Nothing less than a living tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the second witness of Psalm 19. We began among the stars. We came to Torah, God's word, and found it to be a new tree of knowledge, able to make us wise, good for food, and full of blessing. Two monumental witnesses to God and to the God of creation. But then suddenly, without warning, we're no longer in space or in God's word, but we're in the prayer closet of a sinful man. Without even a transition, suddenly David is confessing his sin and asking for grace. Look now at the third and final section and the third and final witness of our psalm in verses 12 through 14. David writes, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What just happened? How did we go from the glories of creation to the wisdom of scripture and then suddenly the intimacy of hearing a man's confession and prayer? Here's what's happening David is reading Genesis. Remember, he's using exact phrases from those accounts. He's reading Genesis, and as he reads, he is confronted with the greatest mystery and tragedy of that book, which is us, humans. Humans, above everything else, 
were made in the image of God. We were supposed to declare the glory of God in a more profound way than even the stars could. We were meant to live forever, always growing in wisdom like a tree planted by still waters. We were meant to be the third witness of Psalm 19, the crowning achievement of God's creation, his masterpiece. You see, it is the creation of mankind that is the climax of God's creativity. We were meant to resemble God more powerfully than any one book, no matter how perfect, could ever do. Now, please don't misunderstand me. The word of God is entirely perfect and entirely wonderful, but its creation is not the climax of God's creative power. We are. Millions of living souls talking, acting, singing, inventing, loving, and living all over the planet in conformity to God's will and personality would have been the greatest revelation of God imaginable. As Christians, we often quote 2 Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God. And that's very true. But in doing that, we often forget that God at creation, long before the writing of scripture, also breathed into us and made us living souls. If we had not fallen into sin, there would not have been a need for scripture. The earth would have been covered in walking, talking, living images of the creator. We would have been living and active, and we would have been sharper than any two-edged sword in our perfect witness to our maker. The greatest witness to God's glory, his crowning masterpiece, it was meant to be us. Think about it. Think about it. The human soul is the greatest gift of God's grace and power. It is the part of us that most resembles him. For in giving us, for in giving us an immortal soul, God gave us something of himself. We are now immortal as God is. We have a soul, as we teach our children from our catechism, we have a soul that can never die. And so can you feel even a part of the scope of this tragedy that God would pour himself most deeply into this creation, into the making of mankind, and that it would be that very creation, the pinnacle of his work, that would then refuse to reflect his glory. We should have been the third witness the psalm should have ended by saying, above Torah, above the heavens, look at man, the image of God. Instead, we hear and know that the heart, our heart, has become desperately deceitful and deeply wicked. So how is he ending the psalm? What's he saying? He's saying, sin is a constant threat to my witness. I want my words to be acceptable. I want to go back and do what I was meant to do, but I can't. I want the meditations of my heart to be acceptable, and yet the threat of sin looms large in my mind. This is a cry of the heart, the cry of every heart that has really come to realize what's gone wrong. So, Lord, he says, keep me 
from presumptuous sins. Quick notes, what are these sins he's talking about? Using the rest of the Bible, we won't go into detail here, but we can make a very strong guess as to what David had in mind here. First, he says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Who can discern his errors? That's verse 12. These are sins he doesn't even know he's doing. He's probably asking God here, simply forgive these sins. I can't even specifically ask for forgiveness because I don't even realize I'm doing them. They're such a part of my life. But then in stronger terms, he asks God to hold him back from presumptuous sins. That is, sins that he's aware of and is doing, even though he knows when he's doing it, it's wrong. And then lastly, he writes, then I will be innocent of great transgression. Some commentators, many commentaries think here that he's speaking of apostasy, falling, falling away from God, falling away altogether. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? There's a progression here from failures we commit each day and aren't even really aware of. These are technically sins. They fall short of the God's glory, but they don't mark our lives and souls deeply because we aren't aware of them. But then there are those sins we openly choose to walk in. We know we shouldn't. David is afraid of them because he knows they can lead to great transgression, even to full apostasy, a falling away, a being given over into judgment. Now step back. Do you see what has happened in the flow of the psalm? The stars are singing God's praises. The word of God is a veritable tree of life, leading us back into our humanity and back into God's presence. But Eden, David realizes, is not a place we can be anymore. This wasn't supposed to be a song about sin. It didn't start out that way. But we got there, didn't we? By the end of the psalm. Because the more you hear creation sing... And the more you read your Bible, the more you have to ask, what's wrong with me? Why is the pinnacle of God's creation, the third and greatest witness, not praising God and living for him every moment? And so David is led to confess his sins and end the psalm with three simple Hebrew words. They are encouraging, but I think there is here a sense of despair in them. He says, O oh Lord, my rock and the one who redeems me, the one who buys me back from slavery. In other words, he says, God, reform me, purify my witness. Like Torah and the heavens, let it be acceptable and pleasing to you. Buy me out of the slavery and misery of my tragic fallen life and make me a faithful third witness. And do you know, this is exactly what God did for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ paid for our sins on the cross. You know that, I'm sure. But do you fully realize with me, really realize what he did for you and me through his life? He lived the God-glorifying, sinless life that mankind was originally destined for. He was the third witness. For a short time here on earth, a greater witness than Torah came. A greater witness than the heavens came. Not just the word, but the word incarnate. He tabernacled with us and we beheld his glory. 1700 years ago, St. Augustine preached this psalm to his congregation. And he told his congregation 
that as great as the witness of creation and scripture is, there is still a greater witness, even a greater witness than the heavens and the Torah. And to make that point clear to them, he quoted to them John 1, 16 through 18. Here are these words. John writes, For from his fullness, that is Christ's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the Torah was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. You see, the Lord Jesus is God's final Torah. He is the ultimate revelation of God's hearts, God's thoughts, and God's character. In sending us the second Adam, his son, the Father has begun to heal the mess we have made by our sin. Now imagine a day, imagine with me a day not long from now, when the earth will be full of the glory of the Lord, millions of men and women from every nation, saved and transformed by Jesus into living, breathing, sinless images of God. Jesus has healed the ending of this psalm. He's healed the last verses of this psalm because now it can be sung by a real human, by Christ himself. But the third verse is not pleading for help against sin, but rather Christ can sing it as a perfect, eternal man in the unending Torah of God. For us tonight, we live then in a moment of great hope and great danger. The hope, the hope piece, is that Christ's life and death, and through Christ's life and death, we now clearly can see the path back to what we were meant to be. Jesus is the answer to David's prayer here. He is our rock and our redeemer. On the cross and through the empty tomb, the way has been made. The third witness will be restored. It has been restored in Christ, the man, and it will be restored in us in glory. A new Torah, a greater Torah, has come. And through him, a race of living Torahs, will once again fill the earth. There's tremendous hope here. But it is, at the same time, I hope you understand, a moment of incredible danger. Here's why. Since God has now given us his final and greatest and clearest witness, the third witness has appeared, there is a desperate urgency that you hear him and respond right now. To ignore nature, to ignore the heavens, well, that's foolish. To ignore the scriptures or Torah, that's dangerous. But to ignore Jesus is inexcusable. We sing sometimes in our songbook the little hymn, What a Gift is Jesus My Redeemer. But have you ever felt the weight of the next line? We sing, What a Gift is Jesus My Redeemer. But then there's this comforting and yet sort of disturbing warning. The song goes, What a gift is Jesus, my Redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to do. You see, having sent his son, who is the exact image of his glory, there is no greater witness left to give. To quote another old hymn, What more can he say than to us he has said? This is why the apostles 
universally in all of the New Testament refer to this age, the age we're living in, as the last days, or it could be translated the final age. They realized that in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God had made his final statement to mankind. They didn't know how long this period would last. They had no idea. But they knew one thing, that there was one and one only age left to this world before the end. Why? Because Jesus was the ultimate witness, the final word from God. Jesus gave us this teaching so that we could understand it in the form of a parable. You remember this in Matthew 21. He tells the story of a wealthy man who owned a vineyard. He left town and he left the farm in the hands of his servants. However, the servants ruin everything, right? And they, they exploit it. They exploit the farm. They exploit each other for their own desires. They claim, actually, in, in the historical background of this parable, they probably claim the farm the vineyard as their own, and abuse each other and the farm itself. In response, the owner sends servants back to confront them and call them to mend their ways. Now, these are the prophets of Scripture, if you follow Christ's analogy. But instead, the servants beat and they even kill these messengers. And then remember what the owner does. The owner, in his patience, his love actually, makes one last attempt to resolve this horrible situation. Here's how Jesus puts it in Matthew 21. Finally, he, that is the owner, sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus then asked the crowd, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? And the crowd said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived, they understood that he was speaking about them. When God made you, when God made you and I, he gave you something of himself. He shared immortality with you. He gave you a soul that can never die. As I reminded my Sunday school class recently, this proves, among other things, that God actually does want to be with us and that he's not stingy in his gifts. The plants, the animals, even the stars don't get immortality. Only we do. It's an unimaginable gift, isn't it? Like scripture, we are in some sense God-breathed. And yet, herein lies the most incredible danger if you're not in Christ tonight. You will keep on living after you physically die, but it will feel like dying. And because God cannot and will not unmake his gift, 
I fear your suffering will be eternal. This is why God has sent his son. This is what's at stake in this third witness. The future of our race and the future of your living soul. The joy of our time is that Jesus has redeemed us. The danger of our time is that there truly is nothing more for heaven now to give. Like the psalm itself then, we too have come to a final crisis. What will become of you and me? We will join the heavens, the Torah, and Jesus in declaring the glory of God, or will sin prevail? Before us in this psalm, eternal life, eternal death, and the preaching of the gospel from Psalm 19. We really are, by the end of the psalm, back in Eden once again. In the fullest possible sense, it is life or it is death. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is a tree of knowledge, exposing both good and evil, making one wise. We see through it and in it this evening the urgency of the call to repent and believe. There is now no more for heaven to do. You have sent your son. You have given the final witness to this world. And this world in many cases has turned from him to eternal damnation. We pray that would not be true of any here, but that we would rather long to join with Christ in being the third witness of this psalm and to lift up our voices in praise to you. Restore us, Father. Restore us back to what we were meant to be until your image is clearly seen in us, until we join Scripture and the stars in bringing praise to you and to your Son. Father, do these things in us, we pray, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.